Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. It's kind of interesting how we get guests on the show. Sometimes, you know, we write them for months, no answer. Sometimes they'll just respond and they want to get on the show. And sometimes they just drop in, like right now. I'm looking here. We've got Bud Hopkins just sitting there hanging out. Bud, how you doing? Pretty well, thank you. You see sitting what I mean? With my summer place in Wellfleet and looking out at a, at a rainy day, but it's really beautiful. Mm. You know, I was thinking here, people always ask us in our forums to mm -hmm. ask specific questions. And a lot of times when you go on shows, people kind of ask you the same old questions all over again. And that's the entire interview. Here on the yeah. PowerCast, we kind of like to do things a little differently. But because there are people there who maybe haven't heard about you in recent years, I've got to ask the opening question. I know David and I answered this. We both read a UFO book at the age of 11. How did you mm -hmm. get involved in this nutty, crazy business? Okay, I'll, this is the, the shortest version I can make. The first thing was I had a UFO date, daylight disc sighting uh, in 1964 uh, with two other people. And this happened in Cape Cod on our way to a party in Provincetown. But at any rate, that got me interested in the subject, to put it mildly. And up until then, I'd been totally skeptical or there was no you know the, the subject wasn't in my mind whatsoever and then uh, I didn't do anything about it for 11 years except pay a lot of attention to things on television and reading a few books and so forth I think I uh, got a couple of newsletters uh, from NICAP and so on but in 1975 is when I really got involved and that's when Manor had store across the street who grumbled to me about uh, something coming down out of the sky and scaring him half to death. And as I looked into it, asked him more about it, and he had no idea I was interested in the subject. This was a landing of a UFO in a park right across the Hudson River in 1975. Hmm. Um, 3 a.m. as this man was driving through, and a, a group of small figures got out of the craft and were digging soil samples. The whole thing was just outrageous, of course. But this man was absolutely scared to death, and uh, even telling me months later about it, he was still frightened. He said that after this happened and he drove home, he, he said he got in bed and, and he didn't want to turn the lights on in the apartment because he didn't know what was going on out there. He thought the world was coming to an end. And uh, when he got in bed, he pulled the covers over his head, he said. He was, you know, this guy was 70. But at any rate, the main thing is, is when I started to look into this, uh, I located um, the doorman of, a, of an apartment building right across from where the incident happened who witnessed the whole thing from uh, his vantage point. And it involved actually through a series of, of side events, him calling the police and uh, the window of his building being cracked and there were other witnesses uh, ultimately who came forward. I wrote an article about it for the Village Voice and um, the New York newspaper. And that led to me receiving lots of letters and phone calls and so forth. And I was uh, off and running as an investigator. And that's how that happened. Uh, 1975, the end, in, in early into 76 when I wrote the article. Well, I don't want to get into the side effects of this because certain people that you and I both know kind of tried to make a circus of that incident. Yes, right. And, you know, we're not going to criticize someone who I've known for so many years, but I thought 
you know, it got to be a little bit crazy. Okay, so you got yourself involved in investigating mm-hmm. the case then, but then later on you became the abduction guy. Now, how did you get sucked into that? Okay, well, the abduction thing, first of all, the background is that in 75 when this happened, uh, I didn't really have any much of an idea of abductions. I had read the uh, Betty and Barney Hill book. I hadn't really accepted it when it first happened and then began to feel I had no way of putting it away. That didn't happen. It just seemed that the uh, people were sincere and there wasn't any reason to have made it up and it was seemed inherently logical. But there was the Hill case and then, of course, the 1973 Pascagoula case, which I read about, which was the second abduction that really made got to be well known in the United States, Hickson and Parker. And uh, in 75, there was the uh, Travis Walton case. And so in 75, when I looked into this case in, in the park across from uh, Manhattan, I thought that there were maybe uh, four or five abduction cases in the world, which I thought seemed logical, seemed like there wasn't any easy way to explain them away. The Travis Walton case, of course, there were so many people involved as witnesses, uh, it seemed almost impossible to uh, put that one away. So I was predisposed to, to accept an abduction case. And so when I started getting letters and phone calls from people as a result of my article about this landing in um, North Hudson Park, people were talking about, uh, I mean, a letter would say, we had something happen similar to the man in the article he wrote. We were driving home and the car stopped and uh, we, it seemed outside of our control. And uh, there was this craft, this thing above the car and light shining down. And then it wasn't there all of a sudden. And they didn't remember seeing it leave. And they drove home and lost, had lost uh, two hours on the way. They couldn't figure out. I get a letter like that. I get another letter and another letter. And I was thinking, okay, <laughs> these are sounding like possible abductions. And because I was, because I'm an artist, I had sold some paintings to uh, a psychiatrist here and a psychologist there and so forth. And I asked them if they would interview some of these people. Uh, if they turned up uh, to see if they were psychologically sound and some of them seemed to be, you know, very willing to undergo hypnosis about the part of the experience they couldn't remember. And after a few of those, I was suddenly aware that this was a widespread phenomenon rather than these two or three or four or five cases that we knew about. And uh, by the time I wrote Missing Time, my first book, which came out in 81, uh, I had looked into a number of cases, maybe, oh, well, cases which were fairly well investigated, maybe seven or eight, but maybe another uh, 10 or 15 that I hadn't been able to look into, but which had all the symptoms. And uh, one of the first things I had discovered, really, that led me to write the book was the fact that this was a far more widespread phenomenon than anybody had ever thought, including me. And at each step of the way, I really didn't know what I was going to get into. I mean, I didn't really have any kind of idea of this to start with. As, as the material came and I assembled the, 
the reports and the data and, and uh, watch these people under hypnosis, which, I, I, as I've said, I had the world's longest um, apprenticeship to hypnosis. I, for seven years, I had other people doing the hypnosis, and I would just sit there taking notes and recording the whole thing and, and then occasionally sending a question that I wrote out to uh, the therapist to ask the subject. So after seven years, I started doing hypnosis myself. Uh, it's pretty easy to do. <laughs> uh, but I had a, a couple of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists sit in on my uh, sessions, and they, they had no problems. At that point, they, I certainly, after seven years, should have known how to do it. But the thing just, just grew of its own nature. It wasn't something that I wished on the world or on myself either. You know, but one of the critics or the criticisms that are voiced against abductions is the fact that people mm -hmm. who really don't know or understand the dangers of this sort of thing are doing hypnosis and they may unfairly or unwittingly mm -hmm. cause people to experience events that really didn't happen. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that there are people out there who are incompetent to do this. One of the things that I did recently at the um, MUFON conference in San Jose was uh, a workshop on uh, how to do this properly and not how to do hypnosis, which is something that they can learn, you know, at workshops and, and get themselves accredited. But the big thing is when the person is in a relaxed state, uh, how you proceed and what you do and what you don't do. And uh, I think that, you know, incompetence is extremely w widespread, unfortunately, as it is in probably any work that uh, uh, any, any group's doing, whether you're dentists or doctors or what. And um, there is a, uh, a story I've always liked that a woman had, had called me and uh, she had had this experience in North Carolina or something. She was driving home, and this was very frightening to her. And suddenly, again, the car automatically stopped, and this object appeared above the car, shining lights downwards. And uh, she found herself unable to move, and she couldn't remember then anything that happened next except things were normal. And she was driving home and had lost uh, an hour and a half or something. So she looked up uh, hypnotists, uh, trying to figure out what had happened during that time. She looked up hypnotists in uh, the yellow pages and got some woman who had done uh, a lot of work with, apparently with weight loss and stopping smoking and so forth, and had no idea of the UFO phenomenon. And uh, she was very new age, and this woman told me that when she went into a trance and uh, they got to the point of the car stopping and so forth, and uh, she said she went into herself, she went into great terror and fear. And uh, the therapist said, it's all right, it's all right, you're safe, you're surrounded by white light. And she said, I know, I know, <laughs> because uh, that was exactly the thing she was most afraid of. At any rate, the, the sheer incompetence of that and uh, it was is terrible. I don't go with the idea that it's easy, and I don't think really anybody who knows much about hypnosis, that it's easy to, to um, talk somebody into a, uh, an abduction experience while they're under hypnosis. It's, you know, if, if you're trying to, to impose an abduction memory on somebody, uh, it's 
just extremely difficult to do. I tried it once in a in a situation where I, where we weren't sure whether it's also a long story. I shouldn't go into it, but uh, I had absolutely no ability to <laughs> put that kind of memory in somebody. I, I just don't think that's easy. If you imagine, just for the sake of argument, that you're going to take somebody who was not raped or mugged, say, in a real-life situation, and try to put them under hypnosis and make them remember that they think that they were raped or, or mugged or whatever, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting that through. Uh, I think, luckily, we have a, most people have a natural BS detector, and I don't think that's a, a kind of objection to this that makes much sense. There, there are other problems to it that maybe, uh, let's put it this way, there, there may be other vulnerabilities to doing an investigation, but there's certainly, I don't think one of them is the idea that it's easy to impart a false abduction memory into somebody. Well, but see, the thing is, I think there's a sense that people feel that hypnosis is more likely to have its application be the modification of behavior versus the retrieval of memories. And perhaps when people think of it in that framework, then you know maybe they're not thinking specifically of implantation of specific memories, but perhaps there's something to the idea that you know by definition, what hypnosis ends up being most of the time is a way to, at a subconscious level, modify behavior. I guess a question I would have for you, are you aware of any case where a recollection, a retrieval of a memory under hypnosis has ever been used in a court of law to determine the outcome of a case? Oh, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't know that it has. It certainly has been used to solve, solve cases. I mean, the most, one of the most famous cases is the Chowchilla, California abduction, real-life abduction of a bunch of school children on the school bus. Do you remember that case? And, no. Uh, no. Oh, it's, that must be maybe 20 years ago, but this was a, a really bizarre kidnapping. Uh, there was a school bus with a bunch of kids, maybe 15 or so, and the driver, and it was stopped by two masked guys with uh, guns, and they had a van, and they uh, put, they got all these screaming and crying kids out at gunpoint, and the bus driver and the bus driver had to help lift the kids up into the back of the kidnapper's van. And uh, ultimately, they were taken to a, a, a big tractor-trailer type thing that had been sort of buried in the ground. Uh, I don't know how they, they did this, but the kidnappers must have worked for months on this scheme. And they, uh, the thing had a, a hatch on the top that they could get out, but they put everybody in there, lowering them down, and then took the ladder away. And um, so what happened was uh, they, there was some kidnapping note, and the police were, you know, totally baffled. And this was 26 kids or 15 or whatever it was. And... Um, the uh, bus driver, uh, who was, let's see, he, he somehow, what happened was uh, the bus driver and the kids in the van, the bus driver managed to get kids on his shoulder and another kid on top of that kid's shoulder. They opened the hatch, and one of the kids got out. And at any rate, then they, got, they rescued the bus driver and all the kids. And the bus driver had nothing, he couldn't describe anything, but under hypnosis, because he had been standing at the back of the van, 
uh, that they were put into, he was able to remember the license number, not the whole mm. number, but most of it. And um, because he remembered, you know, four or five numbers on this van and knew what sort of van it was, they were able to find it and arrest the guys. And it was really kind of an amazing case. Of course, it was amazing because there's a number of children who were who were uh, kidnapped. But that was that's one case where uh, the hypnotic recall uh, solved the case, but it wasn't used in court. Brain tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I. Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Talking to Bud Hopkins, pioneer UFO abduction researcher who's been around there as long as the dinosaurs were. Of course, they said that to my, myself, you know. <laughs> Brad Steiger says, you and I were covering UFOs when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth. What a statement. Wow. David, you want to continue on that line of questioning? No. Okay, that's good. But I will. Okay, let me move back into the abduction thing here because mm-hmm. just to cover a couple of different areas. In investigative abductions, how much of the stuff has to be taken through hypnotic regression? How much of the stuff is actually remembered consciously? First of all, we have some cases where practically the entire thing is remembered consciously without any hypnotic recall. In all the cases, we have uh, conscious recollections of aspects of the of the case for instance uh, let's say what i'd call kind of bookend recollections they may remember consciously the very beginning of the abduction and then they remember the somewhat bizarre end of the abduction and not they don't remember exactly what happened aboard the ship but the beginning that they may remember is in my example somebody's out walking hiking and suddenly paralyzed and uh, he sees this, these figures approach him, little guys with black eyes and so forth. And uh, he remembers them taking 
taking his arms or floating him or something, and there's a UFO, and he does, his memory stops there. And then he might remember being dropped back suddenly in the woods, sometimes rather heavily. <laughs> One man actually was afraid of breaking his ankles, uh, being put down on earth again, and uh, but they're put down, let's say, a mile or two away from where they had been picked up. So they have to go back and retrieve their backpack or their gear or whatever, that kind of thing. So they remember consciously the beginning and the end, but they might not remember the uh, onboard part. Sometimes, uh, actually fairly often, the onboard part of the experience comes back in, in a fragmentary way in flashbacks and partial memories and so forth, some of which can be very terrifying to people when it's suddenly they remember uh, some piece of the onboard experience. But what happens is hypnosis is always the thing that's attacked about this, whereas people uh, simply don't focus on the, the the actual conscious recollections that people have, and um, they don't focus on some of the details which are in themselves totally mysterious. Like in one case, a couple, and I only interviewed the man because uh it was a relationship that had broken up not too pleasantly. But the man um, and his girlfriend at that time were driving on a Florida turnpike, and they went out into the turnpike and got their ticket, and the uh, man, being a very methodical type, uh, checked the amount of money it would cost when they got off. I think Boca Raton was the uh, exit. And he put the ticket and the money right amount on the uh, dashboard, and they were driving along and driving along, and all of a sudden, they looked at each other and said, what just happened? Which, when you think about it, is a very bizarre thing to say. You might say, what was that noise, or what is that light, or what is that whatever. But they didn't seem to know what it was that had just happened that led them to say that. And then they realized they were lost. And then they realized, as they looked around, that they were on a road that was leading directly to Boca Raton. And... Um, they didn't know how they got there, and they checked the dashboard, and the money was there, and the ticket. And, of course, you don't get off a turnpike without paying. <laughs> Maybe the first case in history. But um, uh, they were also had, had lost a couple of hours of time and had some physical aftersights. Mm. Now, the thing is, when we did hypnosis on that, we looked into what really happened during the missing time period. But... You have to go back and say, okay, what would have explained the, the bookend part of this, the beginning? Uh, what, what logical explanation can you bring? And actually, the skeptics do not like to look at that part of it. They only want to take the hypnosis and say, oh, this doesn't work, and so on and so forth. Well, let's, um, a couple of things, Bud, because as you said that, I thought, well, actually, uh, I could think of a way to get off the turnpike without paying. You just drive through the turnstile and don't pay but let's put that aside for a moment you, you have a situation where you had two people in the car yeah. and i'm thinking to myself okay so when you do regress regression hypnosis on on cases like this mm-hmm. does it make sense to take both let's say you have two parties and let, let's assume for a moment that cases that involve more than one person are perhaps yeah. more compelling right um yeah. you get corroborating stories then that ends up mm-hmm. being probably more useful than a single-person story. Okay, so do you handle it in a way where you take the two parties and essentially separate them to minimize any kind of contamination? Do oh, ab- ab- 
Absolutely. Well, no, but, I mean, no, no, but let, no, let me, I didn't ask the question yet, though. You isolate them, separate them, but then you do hypnosis on the two of them at the same time. So there's no potential for any kind of cross-contamination after, let's say, one party is hypnotized. And they have some uh, regression, and would, we would assume that they would then have some kind of a surfacing of memories. You want to be able to keep that away from the second party, right? Absolutely. Okay. So, so is it a thing where you actually then hypnotize both parties simultaneously? You mean separately? And separately. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, separately oh, yeah. and simultaneously. I've, <clears throat> I've done this a number of times where uh, I've had two people come to my studio and uh, we uh, talk about who's going to go first and one goes first. The other one goes out and is uh, told to go to Starbucks for two hours or something or wander right, around right. the neighborhood. And then when they come back, I'm right there to make sure nothing is passed. You see, you also have to remember this. Because unless someone is an outright hoaxer, is determined to make something up and, uh, and really mislead and so on and so forth, unless that happens, these people want to find out what happened to them, what was real. Sure. I mean, they're sure. desperate to know what was real. And uh, you don't find hoaxers in this field uh, of abductions. What you find, is, is, which is always the problem, are people with uh, some mental illness of some sort uh, who have uh, come to uh, worry about aliens the same way that other people believe that the CIA has put a uh, chip in their heads for, to control them or something. You mean they haven't? Hmm? They haven't? <laughs> <laughs> or orders to shoot the president or something, you know, the kind oh, of thing yeah, people. I understand. Uh, so anyway, uh, there, the uh, the point is that once these, you 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 convince yourself that these people are uh, mentally uh, stable, and I've often had them interviewed by psychologists and psychologists first, but I, I don't always have that luxury of. Uh, their services. But at any rate, once you have that, these people want to find out what happened. They're really desperate to know. And I worked with one man once who, and this is not a, a double thing, uh, it, was, it was quite an amazing account because consciously he and his brother and their wives, all four, remembered uh, a UFO, their car stopping of its own accord in broad daylight uh, on a a sort of a back road in, uh, in Nevada, and there was a UFO uh, hovering above the ground, maybe a uh, hundred yards away. All remembers that. Then it remembers suddenly nothing, missing time, and it's getting dark. And it's a long, long story. But the point is, when I worked with the man who was in his 40s, and he was a uh, a man who'd been suffering from a lot of uh, phobias and so forth. One of which was a fear of, of uh, entering a room with people he didn't know. Um, this man also uh, had all kinds of flashbacks and, and uh, sleep problems and so forth. Had been going to a therapist uh, who uh, was experienced in treating PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in Vietnam vets and so forth. And the therap therapist came to the absolute conclusion that this man had had some kind of serious uh, crippling trauma, but they couldn't find the trauma. They couldn't locate it when they went through, you know, child abuse, all these various possibilities. So, um, 
eventually, because of the UFO part of it, he, he finally, a friend of his urged him to see me. So we looked into the case, and at the very beginning of the hypnosis, uh, when we got to the part where the car was forcibly stopped some way, he just totally freaked out, brought himself out of the trance state, sat up, began crying, holding his legs in a kind of fetal position. It was extremely difficult. It was probably the worst time I've ever had in my life with anybody uh, who I was working with under hypnosis. But the point is, I told him to go back and call his therapist right away and to uh, talk to him about what had happened and the therapist could help him. So eventually I found out. I called him and I said, how did it go? And he said, well, my therapist told me that he absolutely believe me that this is what happened, that this is something that seemed adequate to explain his trauma. And I said, that's terrific that he believed you. He can be very helpful. He said, no, it isn't terrific. He said, I broke all my appointments with this man. I'm never going to see him again. And I said, well, why did you do that? And he said, because that's not what I wanted him to tell me. I wanted him to tell me that this didn't happen this way and that I have some psychological problem that he could fix. Now, this is, I'm only saying this is about the idea of how people want to know what happened, even though they're not willing to, to accept it or believe it. Well, that's a, that's a good point that you mentioned here. The fact is that with a lot of the old-fashioned UFO contacts that we all know about, you know, yeah. the percipient, the witness, looks forward to the encounter with these blonde-haired Venusians. But most yeah. people are frightened to death. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and Luke and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're not frightened to death to tell you that we're talking to Bud Hopkins on the PowerCast. And we're just beginning to raise a whole bunch of suggestions and ideas about where the abduction phenomenon goes. So in each case here, we're talking about the fact that pretty much everyone who undergoes this, I would gather, they didn't want it to happen. They wish it never happened. They wish well, they can get back to their lives before this, right? Well, but let's throw a whole wrench into the works here. But you said that you don't know of any people who have knowingly tried to sort of deceive about being an abductee. I'm going to yeah. ask what, what your feelings are then about someone we've had on the show a couple of times. I won't tell you what we found. But what are your feelings about uh, a fellow by the name of Jim Sparks? 
Well, I worked with Jim Sparks mm-hmm. originally. All right. And there were, I, I did a session or two with with Jim, uh, and I like Jim. Seems like a very nice guy. We have to move from, I don't know, from what we were talking about to a second part of this, which is how right. somebody copes with finding out that they're having these experiences, the coping mechanisms. Now, the coping mechanisms can be anything uh, from uh, absolutely hatred, I hate those little gray guys that break their necks, if they, you know, that kind of thing, right. to a, an attempt to turn it into something positive or I have a special relationship with him or I'm special or something. And it somehow is, comforts people, some people, to uh, feel that they ha- they have had a special experience, and that uh, they have given been given special information or something like that. And it, as a coping mechanism, uh, I think that the gym has developed a kind of an elaborate way of of handling an experience that, at the outset, was for him extremely frightening and disturbing. Uh, now I don't want to, you know, do pop psychology on. on on an individual like this. But I do think that, that one has to be very careful if people, uh, well, as an example, Charlie Hickson uh, of the Pascagoula case in 73. Charlie is a wonderful guy and as, as straight as they come and, and certainly, you know, he's a blue-collar guy. He's not educated very well and so forth. Charlie believed that when he was abducted in 73, that they had told him that the landing would take place, they would make themselves known, and so on and so forth, in, 19, I think it was 1997 or mm-hmm. 96. Right. And as 96 approached, he was giving these urgent uh, appeals to people to be prepared because they told him that was going to happen and so forth and so on. And, of course, it's 2008, and and Charlie yeah. probably realized that either this is something that he imagined, misinterpreted, or whether they gave him some deceptive message to see what he would do. I mean, it's hard to know. Well, you know, uh, that even raises, the name of the game. Sure. that's the big thing about all this. That always bothers me, the fact that there is so much deception. You cannot depend on what these others, the aliens, whatever they are, yeah. tell you. Absolutely. Whatever they tell you, chances are it's false. I mean, we're talking now about... Absolutely. We have a star map, the famous star map, the Betty and Barney Hill incident yeah. with a star map, and it shows Zeta Reticuli. Now, yeah. assuming the whole thing is genuine, I have a couple of ideas about that, too. It was probably placed there for their benefit. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion <laughs> well, about it. What do you th- think? Th- there's absolutely no doubt that they play mind games, partly because they're extremely interested in, they seem to be, I should put it that way, in our emotions and our thought processes. And uh, I had discovered a long time ago uh, this situation of their staging uh, events, uh, which just seemed outrageous but um, seemed to be almost like a kind of a psychological test. I was working with this man once, long story, but anyway, he had a lot of experiences. And during one of the things we were looking into, and he was very, I thought, very solid person, um, they did their physical stuff on the table with him. And then he was surprised, this is under hypnosis, they'd take him in a room, 
and uh, there's a normal human who is uh, uh, tied to a chair or something. And, what, and there's an alien who hands a gun, pistol, to this uh, subject, a farm. He was a farmer. And um, they tell him telepathically, this is an evil human. He's done a lot of bad things. You have to kill him. And the uh, human begs for his life and says, no, no, you can't do that. You know, I'm, I, they're lying to you. I didn't kill anybody. I'm not a bad person. And uh, this goes on. And the man, the farmer, is hesitant to do anything. And um, under hypnosis, he was in tears about this. And this is just awful. The man is pleading for his life. The aliens are telling him they won't, the farmer, that they won't let him off the ship until he won't let him go home until he shoots this man. And finally, he aims the gun at the alien, and he said, well, if anybody is going to get killed, it's going to be you. And um, at that point, the guy tied to the chair stands up, and he's an alien, and there's no chair. And what the man is holding, the farmer, is not a gun. And without further ado, they take him off the ship. Mm-hmm. Now, what was this about? I mean, the, the, the deception behind this. And they made him see these things. And this isn't just an isolated case. I mean, we have dozens and dozens and dozens of cases like this. They seem to be contesting our human reactions in situations like this. Maybe especially a situation of stress, and that could be handing somebody a false map to let them think that you know they're we know where we're from, um, or giving messages to somebody. I think Jim has received lots of messages or something, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Who knows what what this what their motivations well, are? But, well, but 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 when you worked with Sparks, then what you're saying is you found his story to be credible. When I started with him, the, the part that he was remembering and the, the early incidents, I thought were credible. But but what's going on now? Not I, I, first of all, I haven't read his book, so I shouldn't. Uh, I, I don't know, know exactly what what he's saying now. But but I suspect that what's happened is a, is a kind of very elaborate uh, coping, you know, d- development of of. Uh, Oh, it's maybe wish fulfillment. I don't know what it is exactly, but um, something is going on, which I suspect is connected with either the staging that they, that the aliens, UFO occupants do, or uh, it's it's some kind of wish fulfilling thing or something. So maybe here he had a basic experience. This is something yeah, I've always wondered about in terms of some of these things, even some of the contactees that we tend to dismiss, maybe somewhere in a point of time, they yeah. actually had a real experience. Oh, that's, that's certainly possible, absolutely. The real experience, uh, I mean, it? whatever it might be, yeah. was never yeah. repeated, but then they're put in a position where suddenly they are celebrities. They have their 15 yeah. minutes of fame, and they say, well, you know, I can go out and do lectures on this, but there are no more experiences. What do I do? So either their followers will urge them on, or they will, on their own volition, add or inflate the story to produce yeah. additional encounters. Well, see, I don't want to, uh, you know, rain on anybody's parade. No, I understand that. Uh, who's been through some stuff. But the point is, uh, just back to Betty Hill, in, uh, I had when I had written uh, Intruders, and there were just thousands of letters. And I had located a uh, um, therapist in um, New Hampshire 
uh, who uh, was, I thought, very good at what she did, and she was doing hypnosis. So I started referring cases to her. And she had, of course, gotten to know Betty Hill. And um, uh, I, I had probably sent her maybe 10 or 12 referrals, which seemed to be something that needed look, looking into. And um, this woman was talking to Betty, and Betty said she had met somebody who she thought was perhaps an ab real abductee, which would mean that now there were two people from New Hampshire who had been abducted, Betty and this other woman. And uh, she sort of let the other woman in on the stage, but, but essentially she never really wanted this, uh, there to be more than really herself and maybe a few others to uh, you know maintain the uniqueness and uh, that's unfortunate and I, I like Betty but it was always a problem well that sort of calls into question though certain basic psychological uh, uh, motivations I mean when people want to be special and unique in regards to this um, phenomenon I always think well I think if I had a, a, an experience that was an extreme kind of an experience, like some of the experiences I've had personally, I actually tend to find comfort in finding other people who have experienced this, if nothing else, to sort of you know self-corroborate that something actually happened. I think it's, it's interesting that certain people are threatened by that, and they want to sort of own the experience as uniquely their own. Well, those are those are very good observations. I think they're they're dead on. Uh, I think that it's very very important for uh, people who've had these experiences to meet and associate with other people who've had the same experience, because the aloneness to, to go really go back to the beginning of the experience. They have the experience. Let's say they were a child, which right. is most of the cases. They have the experience. They tell their parents. This and that happened to them, and the parents said, you just had a bad dream, and they said, no, it was real, or, or they, this really happened, or I really did meet these little people in the woods, or whatever it is, and the parents said, you just have a vivid imagination, uh, so shut up, more or less. Right. And the kid is therefore cut off from his parents. He, he knows he can't tell his parents what's going on, because they won't believe him. So then he he's dealing with the problem, well, maybe I did imagine it, maybe it's just you know, that maybe there's something the matter with me. And the kid grows up, and in school he tells somebody, and the, the same kinds of things happen. Sure. And so he, he's being buffeted with the idea that he must be crazy or something, and he begins to think maybe he really is crazy, and he lives with this. It's just exactly like, to me, the situation of somebody, say, who was eight years old and was... Uh, uh, sexually abused by a Catholic priest and tells his mother, and the mother says, oh, no, good old Father Malley would never do that. That's a horrible thing for you to say. And uh, the kid doesn't, is, is really, again, forced back to think, well, maybe, maybe it isn't real or maybe I'm some, something wrong with me. But that kid meets other kids as adults, let's say, now, and they both have the same story about Father O'Malley or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous release, emotional release, that comes from, from that sort of, of actual confirmation that they're not crazy, that, that they're not, it's not their fault. Something was done to them that shouldn't have happened. And the, and the abductees, when they meet one another, they have exactly that same reaction. You know, thank God this is something that's, that's really going on that I 
I'm not nuts, and I'm not a bad person. I'm not whatever it is. So I love, you know, putting these people together. But as you say, there are all these other people who try to own the experience and separate it from the vast multitude. And, right. and they usually have messages that they were told by the aliens, so well, to speak. Sort of just to get back to the Jim Sparks thing for a moment, um, in, mm-hmm. in the two interviews we did with him and in reading his book, I think uh, I'll speak for, for Gene and myself and say that we, we found this story to not hold up at all. And, in fact, we um, here on the show basically caught him a couple of times, essentially in situations where, you know, we, we asked him things that he was not prepared to answer. Jim sort of likes to just rattle off a bunch of stuff. He has a very well-rehearsed script, and yeah. uh, he's not used, it's not used to people actually asking questions. Just to remind our audience, or for those who haven't heard those shows, at one point, um, he's describing, you know, learning this alien language that seems to have no place in any of the rest of his story. He doesn't actually do anything with this alien language. This is just sort of the excuse for them taking him away for eight hours at a time. And he's describing, describing sitting in the ship for eight hours, like learning this thing. And just out of left field, I said, so how do you go to the bathroom? You know, mm-hmm. if you're sitting in eight hours for one place. Yeah. How do you urinate? And it just, he, he was blown away. He didn't have an yeah. answer. He hadn't considered yeah. this, and he fumbled his way through a, oh, well, I'm used to holding it in. Well, um, then, he's certainly better than I am. Eight hours. <laughs> well, which, which is just nonsense. Well, when you couple that, Bud, with the fact that yeah. at this point now, Jim is offering one-hour phone consultations to comfort other oh, experiences at 75 bucks an hour, and he has oh. an agent, you know, um, at that, know that point. Oh, yeah. yeah well, that's, that's terrible. Uh, See, that's 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 right. that's. You know, that's that's moving into charlatan country, you know. Exactly. That's really exactly. bad. Well, before we but, move uh, any further. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then... A coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. 
Hi, I'm Paul Kimball, documentary filmmaker with the blog The Other Side of Truth, and you're listening to the Paracast with my pals David Biedney and Gene Steinberg. We're talking yeah. to Bud Hopkins, and it's kind of unfortunate that people sometimes take that experience and rather than cope with it or get involved in support systems where they can share the experiences and try to see what it meant to them, to their lives, to maybe humanity in general, they get involved in trying to enrich themselves. I want to ask you a left field question about that, and that is, mm -hmm. okay, assuming what they remember consciously or subconsciously mm -hmm. is correct, do you find at all any possibility, any possibility here, that some of these people are undergoing experiments not on the part of aliens but the government and the reason i raise this question is because the hills for example and i met betty hill once and she seemed like a delightful person maybe even twice mm -hmm. this was a long long time ago and i wonder here in recent years look they lived near a military base many of the people they knew and socialized with they were also in the military and mm -hmm. wouldn't they be an ideal candidate for the government to perform experimentations on. Certainly things that happen in the Arizona, New Mexico, or Nevada desert, well, we know there are secret weapons tests, certainly in certain areas of the country, perhaps Area 51. Wouldn't this be a possibility, at least for some of these abduction cases? Well, this, of course, has been a theme that a lot of people have presented. Uh, I haven't really run into uh, any cases where the abduction situation as as described took place that uh, turned out to be some sort of military thing it it just it just didn't come those cases don't come to me now the way i have always approached the whole thing is in terms of looking for patterns if if somebody tells me something's interesting it's different uh it's you know i put it away and then I got another case of the same thing as being told to me, and another case, and another case. I suddenly have, I'm accumulating data, which checks out. Now I don't have any cases uh, with so-called military experiments of any. Sort. How would you know if they masqueraded as alien? Well, I mean, how are they going to do it? How are they going to do the? Uh, I mean, did they have the, the, in 1961 when Hill's thing happened? Did they have a ship that could hover above the treetops? And the figures, you know, little people and so forth. I mean, George Obarski in the the uh, case that I in, initially investigated in North Hudson Park, uh, he he said, you know, later he said I was trying to think of of what this might be. He said I thought, uh, is there some sort of a foundation that uh, hires these little people to uh, to do some kind of work? You know, and, uh, he was going through all of these explanations where do they get the little people and so on I, I just you know I just can't accept the idea that uh, something like as elaborate as that with as terrifying a result uh, could have been somehow manufactured well you're assuming here of course that the craft they saw was genuine and not something that was drilled into them with hypnosis well if, if you know let, let's look at it a different way let's say that uh, there was no incident at all any place, but they were somehow hypnotized and, and this story was drilled into them and so on, that this is what they saw. Uh, that's far more plausible than the idea that the government constructed some kind of a 
fake UFO and got all these little people. Sure. Uh, let, let's go back to the idea that, too, that abduction cases go back, in my experience, uh, into the 1920s. Uh, I dealt with, uh, with two different cases where the people involved, each case was a, was a woman who at the time was a, a, a young girl, and the cases are exactly like what we have today. This woman, when she first saw the UFO, uh, she thought it was some kind of, because it was gray, some kind of a blimp or something she didn't know that was uh, resting right behind a tree. And um, when these little figures came out, they floated down to the ground, and she she thought there, there was there was something magic, and but she was terrified, and she tried to run and couldn't couldn't move. Now she's telling me all of this much later, and it's a whole lot of other detail. But we're dealing with 1920s now. Uh, does the government, uh, did uh, Calvin Coolidge or somebody like that, order such things to be built that were never used in any of our conflicts? Uh, I, I'm always. Uh, well, we understand that. No, I would yeah. agree with yeah. that. But that doesn't mean that some of the current case or even some of the cases in the last few decades were not government experiments of some kind. Well, listen, I, I haven't investigated every single case that ever happened. You have to remember, my position is a skeptical one. Uh, I'm a skeptic until somehow I can look into something and find out for myself, to my own satisfaction, that something happened or didn't happen. And uh, as a skeptic, uh, I just haven't seen any kind of evidence that would suggest that kind of government f fooling around. It just doesn't make sense to me, and I don't get the reports. So I just have to say I find that highly, highly unlikely. But, of course, to say... It never happened, that there was never any government experimentation like that, is to become a true believer like the uh, people who truly believe that UFOs do not exist. That was I'm an interesting freaking. point you had made in a paper you sent us here. And when we talk of true believers, we think of people who accept anything in the UFO field. Yeah. But what you're talking about here is that the hard-nosed skeptics like the late Philip Klass, these yeah. people were true believers in another sense. They were true believers in the conviction that UFOs could not possibly have anything that is weird or unusual, that it's exactly. all conventional. Exactly. That's their true belief. And they believe that as firmly, as I said, as the Pope believes in the virgin birth. I mean, it's, it's, it's an article of, of faith. And so just as in you know religious questions, there can be some very complex Jesuitical explanations for this and that, uh, he found, as it were, Jesuitical explanations for every UFO case. He could explain any case that there was at all, anything. If somebody said there were 15 witnesses, he could say, okay, it was a plot. And you can say, well, they never knew each other. Well, that's what they told you, but they did know each other. It, 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 there's no way you get around that. It's like arguing with a, a street corner evangelist to talk to people like, like class. Well, people will believe anything they want. We know that, and we see that in every every facet of society. Certainly, people believe in things, yeah. and those things don't require any kind of corroboration or validation. Yeah. You know, they simply go find their other group. I mean, it's pretty clear, as you stated, but you've got true believers. I actually tend to call them fundamentalists on the yeah. side, where they're not skeptical thinkers. They're debunkers. They're basically they have a yeah. vested interest, and that's it. 
Right. And then you've got the true believers on the other side that will buy, will have an open mind about everything uh, and not apply any kind of, a, you know, sort of critical analysis. Yeah, no, no standard of, of no evidence standard. of anything. But the problem, of course, being that when we talk about things like abductions, um, when the term evidence is kind of problematic. I mean, to your mind, what constitutes true evidence of an abduction case? I mean, obviously, the first thing was the uh, congruence of the stories, that mm -hmm. they, the things they were recalling, and the moments in which the emotion occurred and the sequence of events and etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, this has been demonstrated by uh, Eddie Bullard who you know has an, a degree in folklore a PhD that uh, the sequence of events and the things that happen seem to be extraordinarily similar and as he points out um, the abduction stories don't change uh, the same thing I get the same thing you know last month from somebody as I got uh, back in 1976 from somebody. Stories don't change and uh, the, uh, as Eddie Bullard said, folklore is constantly changing and ur uh, urban uh, myths and so forth, these things change and are embellished and go this way and that way, but that doesn't happen with abductions. So the stories all have the quality of, of a true event rather than um, some sort of free-floating fantasy or whatever. So you start with the stories, the accounts. Then there's the physical evidence. There's the uh, fact that very, very often the person is taken and is returned with a, with a scar, with a, a closed scar or a scoop mark. The round-ish, uh, sometimes oval, sometimes round, mark where a layer of flesh has been taken. I've seen maybe a hundred of these in there. Right now, there's a... Um, dermatologist in New York has looked at least the, the photographs and he's now going to be examining a couple of the actual scoop marks on people just to establish that this is not something that comes from a, you know, some disease or whatever. And he found them extremely unusual. So you've got these marks on all these people. Uh, of course, class would say, well, they're self-inflicted, something like that. You know, and that was explained away that way. People get some tool and gas themselves. But at any rate, you have the second area which is important is often when the craft lands, they affect the soil, bake it into a kind of a rock-like consistency, changes the color of it into a gray from the black-brown as happened in the uh, case I wrote about in, in Intruders. But this has happened many times. Sometimes if the craft comes down in an area where some tree branches are sticking out, they get snapped off from the top down so they're hanging. So you have the evidence that something very physically occurred here to alter the soil and to uh, break the tree branches. Class would again say somehow that this had been faked. Right. Of course, we have somebody there who's just taking his axe and going to the tree branches. Listen, we're just about to wrap up hour number one. We have a second hour to spend with Bud Hopkins on the Faracast. <laughs> In a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring. Come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. It is reality. Cyrus, David Bassett. David Vietney. Dr. William J. Burns. David Hatcher Childress. <laughs> Patricia Corbin. Richard Dolan. Bye. 
We're back with Bud Hopkins, and we've been talking about the various factors that show possible evidence of UFO abductions. I want to look into beliefs and disbeliefs for a moment, but first I wanted to segue on something. I read something on your Intruders Foundation site. Mm-hmm. intrigued me and the reason is we've had a number of discussions about the veracity or lack thereof of the late philip corso co-author with mm-hmm. our friend bill burns of the day after roswell and to be brief you don't buy it for a number of reasons now i should preface this by saying that bill burns takes the blame or the credit for specific errors in the book such as the actual position that Corso held supposedly with the Eisenhower administration, etc., etc. But there are other wide-ranging reasons why you disbelieve the whole thing, and maybe you can explain that to our listeners. Right. Well, I first should say that when I heard the book was coming out by an insider, I thought, great, fantastic, until I read it. And uh, uh, the very first thing, and it was probably the, the biggest problem in the whole book, is that Roswell, of course, happened in 1947, and anybody would know that the immediate thing that would happen would be top scientists would be brought in, the wreckage would be carted off to some very, very, very secret and and guarded uh, hangar or something, and the thing would be reconstructed. Even when things are um, examined, for instance, by archaeologists, uh, the, the idea of what piece uh, that they find is on top of what other piece might define the uh, era of a whole uh, civilization or something. So where things are crucial. So this thing would, would be examined as it was by the top people instantly. It would be the most important collection of artifacts on the face of the earth. And Corso's entire point is nothing happened at all. Nobody did anything. Pieces were divided up for different people to look at, uh, thereby, of course, destroying any sense of of what the thing looked like together and what part came. And uh, it was not looked at by anybody except in a totally perfunctory way, as if it were just some casual thing, until he came along 14 years later and was handed a box of what he calls space junk, which was rolling around in there, unprotected, and had a sheaf of little yellowing papers. And his boss said, here, oh, this is space stuff, this all crashed at Roswell, and nobody's done anything about it. You see what you can do. And he saved the world. He, he says at the end, uh, he saved the entire planet because he uh, was able to get this stuff uh, studied and it could be reverse engineered and so forth. Well, now that just is the most preposterous 
story anybody could imagine and how anybody could accept that this stuff just kind of laid around until for 14 years uh, a wrecked UFO, pieces of it, and nobody did anything about it except him. It's just off the wall. So he also has his, uh, he, he claims that he knew all these Russian spies, and they were telling him what uh, Harry Truman was saying in the White House. Uh, he was hearing all this stuff directly from the Russian spies who either had bugged the White House, although he doesn't say that, or had a mole in the White House, but somehow, even though he knew Russian spies were able to tell him everything that was going on that uh, Truman was saying in the Oval Office, he never reported it to anybody. He never, you know, caused the whole thing to end and the Russians to be arrested. And he goes on and on with one story after another, totally and absolutely unbelievable. So there's just no way in which there's no, no corroboration. I interviewed the man once and begged him for one name of anybody who could come forward and help verify his account. He said, oh, I can't give anybody's name. And I said, but, you know, most of these people at the time I interviewed him, three, six years after the so-called uh, reverse engineering done by our great leader here, Colonel Corso, 36 years at that, I said, I said, you know, a lot of these people are dead now. And maybe they'd like some kind of credit that retroactively here in their graves for having saved, helped, helped you save the planet. Oh, I can't give any names. I mean, it's, mm. this is an evasive little yeah. nobody of a person. And uh, how it could be taken seriously, the point is I firmly believe that reverse engineering has taken place, obviously. You know, if, if something crashed that was uh, useful, that we could understand and, and uh, uh, study reverse engineering to make it, you know, some kind of technological advance. It's bound to have happened, you know. But it would have started in 1947, not when this little man came along in 61. You also and, uh, make the point, too, that this is not the only area where Philip Corso has inflated his biography. Uh, absolutely. You know, he, I mean, he, one of his uh, backers, Maurizio, I forget his last name, B.A. something, he was an Italian man, a very, very nice guy, I have to say, who I liked so much, but he was absolutely, totally uh, under the sway of Corso, and uh, Corso, of course, spoke Italian, Italian background, but this man, uh, Maurizio, told me that he said, well, he was great because he told, for other reasons, too, because he told me he saved Italy. And I said, during World War II, and I said, you mean we saved Italy? So I, you know, the Allies and the troops. No, no, he said he personally saved Italy. He made certain decisions towards the end of the war, and uh, it involved, it was a long, some long story involving the communists and uh, so on, and uh, he managed to save Italy. I said, Jesus Christ. I said, Eisenhower never said, I saved Europe, which he would have had a, something of a claim. And, and uh, Churchill never said, I saved England, which he, uh, in a way, did. Uh, those people didn't make those claims. Who is this little guy who, who ended the, the war finally as a colonel, which means that he was not regarded as, as uh, material for, for being promoted to a general? Who saved the entire planet along the way saved Italy first. This is, this is a man, a megalomaniacal inventor of stories. And, uh, 
you know, I, in a way I feel sorry for him because he probably had such a kind of mediocre career that he decided to give it a, a zest at the end of his life. And out came this crazy book. Now, I don't know what the role Burns had in it, but, but obviously Burns believed it. And um, when I talked to uh, Corso about Burns, he was extremely critical of Burns and said Burns had never showed him, shown him the finished manuscript. So I don't know who wrote the book, but the mm. point is the rook from one end to the other cannot be believed. Well, just removing the personalities and looking at the timeline of the development of certain technologies like the integrated circuit, um, you have key work on the IC being done in the early 50s, and this is years before Corso claimed to have released these materials into the hands of people who then reverse engineer these technologies. Of course, if, if we talk about the topic of reverse engineering, uh, I'm personally of the opinion that unless whatever technology that was retrieved was within a two to three hundred year time period of our own yeah. technological level of understanding, we'd simply have no way to reverse engineer stuff. For example, if you have something that is based on a power source that, yeah. for which we have no understanding, there's actually no way you can reverse engineer anything. You just can't. Well, that, that's, that's, that's an extremely good point. And I think it was Stan Friedman who uh, made the great point that if in... 1862, during the Civil War, the Union had come upon a, uh, miraculously, the wreckage of a, uh, of a jet fighter plane. Yeah, nothing they could do with it. What would they do with it? They would have no, no idea what made it go. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, so it's, I, it's, 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 yeah, no, I, I think that the likelihood of any kind of reverse engineering um, yeah. is right up there with Santa Claus. I, I personally don't think there's any, uh, there's any validity to any of it. But now... I want to also take us a little off track here and get back onto the abduction scenario, but no. because one of the things that I think is probably fair to say is that there's a very hard delineation in the field of abduction studies or the field of interactions with non-human entities, where you have on one side people who report fairly um, negative experiences, the kind that I think has have been largely covered in in your work. Um, and then, of course, we have on the other side people who are reportedly interacting with these beings and are getting messages of, of hope, are getting messages of you've got to stop doing things to the planet to hurt it. Um, and, and the Space Brothers scenario, we're here to help you. We want to help you evolve and help you grow. So but the question I think that people are, a lot of people I think are curious about is, what is the more likely of the two scenarios? And and try to address this without letting your own research work in terms of, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I think most of your research involves people who report experiences that were, for the most part, not pleasant, not positive. How do you feel about the other side of these reports of you know the space, the benevolent space brothers? What's your take on all that? I've, I've just never seen any uh, evidence that such things exist. Uh, benevolent space brothers. I remember having a discussion once with James Harder, and he was saying, oh, well, you just work with the uh, bad aliens, you know, but the good aliens are here to help and so on and so forth. And um, I said, well, what, what, what's the evidence that there are such beings? And he said, well, you know, they're invisible. You can't see them. Oh, so, and they don't leave any traces. Oh, uh -huh. no traces, etc. In other words, they're very much like a, a guardian angel 
who yeah. uh, people feel has helped him. It, and it's a very, very human thing to want to feel that this, whatever this is, is going to be good. I mean, I, listen, I would love it to be different than it is. Sure. And I remember a, a conversation I had once with Leo Sprinkle, and um, he was saying, well, they're here to help. And so this is many years ago. And uh, during the, actually, this is during the uh, last stages of the Vietnam War. And uh, I said, well, you know, what, what good are they, have they done? And he said, well, we haven't set off the atomic bomb. They, they, uh, oh, they and I said, well, don't Chris Jeff and, and Kennedy get some credit for that? And, and, and all of those people in, in terms of the Vietnam War, all those people who marched, I did too against the uh, the war and so forth. Don't we get some credit for ending the war and all these things that he was trying to say the aliens did? I said they, there's no record that any uh, little Jewish baby was saved from Auschwitz by benevolent aliens. There's just no evidence for any of that. You know, we age was was sort of came into existence at a time that this is supposed to be. But the Space Brothers are helping us. I, I've never seen any evidence for it. So if there's no evidence, then I have to put the, that whole side of things oh. into the same place okay. that I put uh, Guardian Angels. I could just make that one comment, quoting that famous motion picture from 1939. Frankly, my dear, they don't give a damn. But we give a damn. Exactly. <laughs> This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net hi my name is richard dolan you're listening to the paracast with my two friends gene steinberg and david biedney we give a well, damn by the way about the fact that bud hopkins has joined us and we're on the second hour and david biedney is champing at the bit i can sense it well, yeah, but what, what about the Maelstrom Air Force Base episode, the Maelstrom Missile Base, where you have Captain Robert Salas recounting a tale of a I, UFO, I right, disarming 10 nuclear missiles. So what's that about? Well, I don't know what it's about. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a very good case, and I think Salas is, is, you know, an excellent witness and so on. I don't know what it means, but the point is that the missiles, I mean, maybe they're just seeing if they could do it or something. Who knows? But, it, you know, there wasn't any immediate threat of war that some of the missiles were going to be launched or anything like that. It's just like something that happened in the middle of, of the Cold War. And I don't know why or what. One of the problems is whenever you say, why, why do you think the aliens did X or Y? Uh, why did they uh, disarm these missiles? Just the way of knowing. But right. I can't ascribe it to, to uh, some sort of benevolent uh, motive. 
Hey, well, I tell you what, there's also no way of knowing if they're aliens. I think we should recategorize them as non-human entities. That's yeah, well, I call, what I do is I call them UFO occupants. That's, okay. Because that's, right. that's too, too long to say it takes up valuable air time. No, 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 that's a valuable way to categorize them. So, yeah. you know, given that, you've got years of putting in time looking at people's abduction experiences and their retelling of them. Well, here's a way to phrase it. What are the least obvious common elements in these things? I mean, we hear about recurring elements like the removal of, uh, of genetic material. And by the way, those scoop marks, that's something I wanted to ask you before I forget. Has anybody measured them? Are they all the exact same size? No, they're not the exact same size. I've seen big ones and little ones. Uh, oh. One of the points is I think they start as circles uh, because... I've seen uh, some on little children. But uh-huh. the point is, if it's on the shin, say, which they often are, as you grow, the skin stretches and the circle becomes an oval. Oh, okay. uh, so, so, I mean, that's just a natural thing with scars. They also elongate <laughs> So, uh, as you grow. So I, I don't really, uh, you know, incidentally, one thing when we're talking about evidence that I didn't get to, which is important, and that is that I have been... Uh, people have been telling me occasionally that they have seen symbols. It seem to be some form of writing. And I have started collecting these um, recollections, uh, many under hypnosis and many not under hypnosis, many natural recollections. And I have now gotten over 40 different people uh, coming up with virtually identical symbols. And even more interesting in a way, I've gotten uh, samples from two different researchers who of symbols that they have retrieved which match the ones I have. And I've never made any of this public for the reason that it gives me a wonderful kind of way of confirming the sure, accuracy and so forth. But I am going to probably next, this is this coming year, we'll make this all public. We have a psychologist who's studying the symbols uh, and trying to, uh, with a control group, having students trying to draw uh, symbols that aliens have come up with. But, I, but as far as I'm concerned, this is staggering evidence. Well, if you have that kind of uh, extensive corroboration, triangulation, yeah, then you have something then you have yeah. something to write home about, as they say. Um, well, right, this, getting, this, is, this is like that. Well, let me ask uh, you a quick question, just to interrupt here, because it kind of follows, which sure. is once you have these symbols, do we try perhaps to translate them? Well, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> I mean, there's no way. I mean, you, you, I don't think that if you have a, a sort of, well, let's, let's say some sort, some sort of uh, language that is communicated telepathically, how in the world do you uh, go about? I mean, who knows what the, what this stuff means or says? It's just uh, sometimes there are, there's like a number of symbols, and sometimes there's just like one big symbol. Uh, but the, the similarities are, are quite amazing. And, well, I guess um, what you could do is look for any kind of similarity to, of these symbols to any kind of iconic imagery that we have from the history of culture. Of course, that would be yeah. one way to do it. But if there's no overlap there, um, yeah, then you have That's something. the history of earthly culture. Yeah, know? exactly, exactly. Now, so so well, we're, we're stuck, you know. Well, but let's let's try to analyze the information that we have. So you, you have all of these experiences, and what I was uh, sort of, I, I got, I, I sidetracked myself a little bit before. What is one common element of these experiences, Bud, that you find 
does appear in different recountings that is not often mentioned. And, and along those same lines, what's your thoughts about the high weirdness factor? We talk a lot about this on the Paracast, the aspects of these experiences that people are really very reticent to report on because they think it makes them look too weird, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Have you found any high weirdness elements that surface more than a couple of times that seem to uh, sort of s- indicate some similarity between these things or maybe get us some clues to understanding what's going on? Yeah, yeah. well, that's a very good question. First of all, in terms of, uh, of uh, specific descriptions of things that in the ship or in the procedures that are carried out, Mm-hmm. There are a collection of things which are rarely reported but are dead similar. And those things I never make public because they're, very, again, very helpful to verify somebody's uh, accounts. But in terms of something that can be made public that's of high weirdness, we certainly have a number of cases where there seems to be a sort of a poltergeist effect in the surroundings that from time to time. And we have no idea why this takes place. It, it doesn't seem to be necessarily connected with an abduction, but it's something that happens in the experience of abductees. Very strange, you know, the poltergeist thing is is so odd because it doesn't... Well, well tell us what you mean by that. Tell us what you mean. Give us an example of that, please. Okay. Well, a poltergeist thing is... An example is uh, a couple who were abductees, a man was an abductee, and a couple of kids. The parents arrived um, after driving, you know... 300 miles or 200 miles for a visit. And they came into the man's, the man's house, and they were sitting in the living room having coffee or something, and kind of looking out the window where the children were playing, and all of a sudden a, hur- a uh, hurricane lamp that was sitting on the windowsill rises up, makes a perfect circle in the air, not, not dropping its its glass uh, shield or anything, and comes back to rest on the windowsill in front of all of them. And at that point, the parents finished their coffee and decided they had to leave and drove the two or three hundred miles back home. The Kathy Davis case, uh, Debbie um, is the real name, who uh, I wrote about in Intruders, uh, had a situation where uh, she was with her boys. Uh, they were little, young, very young kids. And... Uh, they were in a, a room that was sort of below ground level. No, no not really. It was, just, it was just a little lower. You had to go up about five steps to the kitchen. The kitchen was at the top of the stairs, and she heard all this moving around in the kitchen and people in the kitchen. And she got scared because nobody was at home, but uh, family was out. And it was daytime. She didn't know who these people were. She called her because the noises were, some, were something. She called the, uh, her father. He called the police. And then there was a terrible crash and then silence. And she was huddling downstairs with the kids. The police came and they went in and they opened the, there's nobody there, nobody around, no sign of any breaking or anything. And uh, they opened the refrigerator and everything fell out as if the refrigerator had been tipped forward and everything just all crashed down to the floor and made this mm-hmm. horrendous mess. Hmm. Now, what is that about? I mean, how does that fit? The only thing that's similar to other cases, as you mentioned, that are high weirdness, is that it happened to an abductee again. And right. and th- these cases are not so rare. Just thinking maybe there's a clue that surfaces that indicates a change on perception of external surroundings on the part of the abductee 
that would um, indicate that their perception was being altered. I mean, th- because what, what you said is interesting. You have this uh, sort of uh, telekinetic stuff happening that doesn't seem to be connected. And it just makes me wonder in talking to more and more people, we, we seem to come to this place where it seems like when when these things are going on, for people when uh, when these extreme experiences happen mm-hmm. there seems to be some modification of the way that reality is perceived uh, our friend Jeff Ritzman uh, has talked to us about this at length he's a fairly ex- extreme experiencer and um, we've kind of come up with this idea of this uh, hyper reality almost like the things have a kind of a, a gloss to them when this is going on there's everything is like buzzing a little bit and it just makes me wonder if we're seeing a if there if this whole uh, phenomenon requires a change in our perceptions in order for this whatever it is to manifest, or even at the point where you've got people forgetting their experiences, which indicates some sort of uh, manipulation of memory going on. Oh, absolutely! Right, and so when you have manipulation of memory, right, it's central to all of this. It, I think it, it it starts to make us wonder. What is happening with with psychological uh, perception and manipulation? And I've always sort of wondered if if these creatures, whatever they are, have such a, an intense level of ability to control our perceptions. And you know, they're they're supposedly wiping memories, memories that are being retrieved by hypnosis. Let's just play a what if game here. If these creatures have enough of an understanding of our minds to be able to do what they appear to be doing. It almost appears as if they're letting the memories stay, that if they wanted to truly erase the memories that they could, and maybe they're not, maybe they do want people perhaps to remember these things at some point or through some process. I mean, how, how do we deal with the idea that you've got these beings that have this amazing technology that can do things we really at this point don't understand, that can manipulate our, our emotions and our senses, but that uh, apparently their, their, their technology sort of falls off when it comes to permanently erasing the memories. How do you explain that? Can you? Well, that's always been a, a huge problem. I mean, let's get back to the really core problem. Why do we see UFOs sometimes, and why do they seem to be unseeable or invisible other times? Do they want us to see them? Why, do, why sometimes and not other times? Why sometimes do they turn up on radar but we can't see them? And other times they, we can see them and they don't turn up on radar. I mean, just to start with, with the complexities of that situation. Can I throw something in there because you raise a really interesting point, but there's a story now about the invisibility question. And of course, we're not talking about the Romulan cloaking device. We're talking about mm-hmm. a story that came out, as a matter of fact, at Yahoo News and a lot of other places. I'll read the first sentence. Scientists say they are a step closer to developing materials that could render people and objects invisible. So light kind of bends around them. So you could mm-hmm. make a craft or a person invisible by choice, of course, to human eyes, to radar, etc., etc. So well, no, 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 not to radar, just to, to visible. This is just invisibility as far as visible light. Yes, but we, right. you know, it follows that if you could do that, and you're a civilization that's a space-faring civilization with great advancements, 
they could make themselves invisible to anything, almost. Well, you know, this is, of course, something that we covered in uh, Sight Unseen, my last book. And uh, the idea of Sight Unseen, the unseen part of the book, had to do exactly with uh, our attempts to, uh, to render things invisible by one method or another. But the bending light around the uh, object is, is certainly one of them. But the point is, to get back to why they are visible sometimes and, and invisible other times, as an example, in the, uh, in the case I wrote about in Witnessed, uh, when the UFO, which was going to be taking Linda Cortila, when they wanted it to be seen, apparently, all the lights went on, huge beams of light shining down to the ground, illuminating uh, Linda and these three alien figures, UFO occupants, as they floated out of the 12-story window and up into the craft. And there were, as it turns out, quite a few witnesses to this at different locations. And these are witnesses that have come forward later after the book and, and many at the time. At any rate, somebody said, well, you know, did anybody see the UFO going back and then putting Linda back? And, of course, the answer was no, nobody saw anything. Uh, as if that part of it was deliberately cloaked or made invisible, and the first part was a showing off, which is what I believe it was because of the uh, important <laughs> political figures who were and stopped in a motorcade down below. But the point is, it shows that they can, it's like an on and off switch, they can do it or not do it. Now, why do they choose to do it ever, which is right along with why do if they can control memories in an exact way, uh, why do they ever let anybody remember? Uh, is it deliberate? When they make a mistake, uh, for instance, I have two separate cases where uh, couples were abducted, and the point is that when the women got home after this, they were taken from cars, this is a long story, but anyway, when they got home, the women realized that their earrings were in backwards, mm. different cases. Uh, hmm. The posts were coming through, and the clasp was on the front. Now, the front, interesting. Is, is this, are they letting us know something, or is this incompetence, or what is this? Uh, is this thing so widespread that mistakes are made, and inevitably, or, or what? Uh, there's just no way to get into a, a non-human mind and try to figure those things out, as far as I'm concerned. So I sort of don't tr even try. <laughs> Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I- Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
we're talking to Bud Hopkins on the Paracast, and we're in another 31, 32 minutes left with this discussion. But I do think you've raised some interesting possibilities here that whatever they are, whoever they are, they're putting on a show for us. And it's their option whether that show is something we'll see, we won't see, but or none you, or all of the above. Now, that doesn't sound credible to me, Gene. Why would they? That's very vain of you to say they're putting on a show for us. Well, they're putting on a Why show for some that? reason, whether it's to benefit us or to amuse themselves. Maybe, you know, we're just the amusement park. Let's take no, these talking think, monkeys think, and have fun no. with them. No, I think you're important. You're importing perhaps too much importance on uh, on what we get out of it. You know, it, it's kind of like saying that uh, you know we have a bunch of ants in a in a little uh, enclosure, and that uh, we we do things then because we care about uh, how they react. No, we're just trying to understand nature, and ants outweigh us two to one in biomass on the planet. So they're important to us because hey, it's our planet. They outweigh us two to one. Maybe if we understood something about how they work, uh, it can help us uh, in our own domination of the ecosystem. Uh, you know, at that point, I think, uh, and this, but of course, brings us to the one of the big questions of abductions: the interest in genetics, um, yeah. which, which I've always had certain issues with. Uh, I think, um, yes, obviously, there there does appear to be on the part of whatever these beings are some interest in what's going on genetically with life on this planet and probably fair to say that the diversity of life on this planet as vast as it is would be a thing that would be of uh, i think rather obvious interest to a non-human species but what do you feel about the claims of the um, interest in human genetics as a way to create a hybridization program what are your thoughts about that topic well, I, I really think that's going on. That, that's what I presented first in um, Intruders. And uh, right. I, I think that most UFO abduction researchers accept this because so many cases uh, have emerged that, that are exactly like this around the world. It's, it's, it kind of inevitably comes up. And uh, I, I see, see the, big, the big question to me is what the, this is ultimately for. These beings are created, and I certainly feel the evidence is there to suggest that these beings are being created and um, uh, hybrids for uh, the sake of a better, of a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a poor term because ge genetic, uh, genetically manipulated individuals are better because the, the process seems to be a kind of gene splicing rather than taking a, uh, a human sex cell and, a, and an alien sex cell and trying to make them merge doesn't seem to that's the true hybrid and that doesn't seem to happen so why are they doing this what is the purpose of creating these beings and uh, listen I, here, I sit here <laughs> finding it difficult to even bring this up but I think there is a very solid evidence that some of these beings do exist here on earth uh, as if there is a kind of a, of a slow or subtle uh, infiltration but for what purpose we have no idea and it, it sounds off the wall to say this but actually ever since I got into this business and started working with people at each step of the way what I was learning was was somehow both shocking, unbelievable, and unpleasant. And uh, this is 
shocking, unbelievable, and unpleasant, and yet I just really feel the evidence is there that this is going on. They are creating these beings. I don't know what for. Again, nobody knows. Well, is it just that they're doing it because they can? I think when you bring this up, you know, you, you have some pretty uh, obvious kinds of reactions you probably get. Some people going, oh, my God, they're taking yeah, of us. Course. You know, they're, they're, this is like slow invasion. It's, it's a bit noxious. I think there are other people might look at this and go, well, this is just the kind of scientific experimentation you would expect to see on the part of any technologically advanced species. Maybe it doesn't Absolutely. have, you know, maybe it doesn't have deeper meaning than that. Or when, when I hear this, I mean, to be perfectly honest, to take it in an incredibly strange direction, I start to think about the possibility of, uh, manipulation of the timeline by future humans. And I think, again, uh, you know, when we, we step off this precipice, it, it gets very ugly no matter, no matter which way you fall. But, David, what about that other yeah. possibility, which certainly follows what Charles Fort said, what, 90 years ago? I think we're, we're property. We're property. That we were seated yeah. here by aliens, and they are just making a few modifications with their property. Well, see, all of these things we've been saying, uh, including what I've been saying, are, are uh, speculations as to motive. And uh, that's, the, that's the area that, you, that I wanted to stay away from because we just cannot figure out. Uh, the story I told about the, uh, the farmer who was abducted and was told to shoot this normal human mm-hmm. inside the ship tied down, what was the purpose of that? I mean, uh, it scared the man absolutely to death, had him in tears. What happened? Well, it was no denouement. He just, you know, just ended and... Why? What was this? We can assume, we can guess that they they were studying the emotional reactions of a person in that kind of really difficult situation. But it it goes to the heart of why would they would be creating these beings? And uh, the thing is, it could be, as you said, a slow invasion. It could be some kind of scientific way of uh, deeper investigation of the humans and and the diversity of the planet. So it could be any kind of thing. They could be picking up what they need to know and create these beings and then uh, swoop them all up and go back and populate Planet X or something. There's no way of knowing well, no, but here, let's play a what-if game for a moment. I mean, if we look at these, so what I've always been struck by in all of the things I've read about these these creatures is that they definitely seem, from what I've gathered, they seem to be more closely tied to a hive-like mentality, a very rigid caste system, versus what humans Absolutely. Have, right? Okay, so let's assume for a moment that's the case. And in that scenario, you know, if you have a hive... A society, okay? You have a, let's say, a soldier caste of, I'm thinking ants. I always think about ants when I think about this stuff. You know, soldier ants will kill in order to, uh, in, in order to protect the colony. They won't think they're programmed to kill. That's it. Yeah. Protect and kill. All right. So now you've got human beings a bit different than other creatures. This whole issue of free will. Which and individuality, which I suspect really is probably more more rare than we would think it is. So now you've got this um, this hive based society, and they're trying to understand what is perhaps I, I I think the most obscure aspect of the human species morality. This thing that is incredibly flexible, very hard to tie down, has a really crazy history throughout the, the history of human society where you, you have this incredible sort of a, a rupture between um, 
you know, belief and intelligence and integrity, this thing called morality, that I think, you know, when we bring up morality, it's such a murky area. And I think that when you're talking about this experiment, Bud, it almost sounds like these creatures are trying to understand something about what, what I suspect is perhaps the most impenetrable aspect of human behavior, which is morality. You know, I, I completely agree with you that this seems to be the most logical interpretation. And one of the reasons why I come out of this more optimistic than, than pessimistic in the long run is that when you ask yourself what do they seem to be most interested in, mm-hmm. you brought up the issue of human morality, decision-making, how we treat our fellow humans. They seem to be interested in that. Centrally, they seem to be interested in especially how we treat our children. Uh, let's say if they have a, a, a culture, again playing if, where babies are created in, by uh, mixing cells together and developing them in some kind of a tank and so on and so forth, and there's right. no females carrying the, the baby inside for nine months and that kind of thing. The connections that they would feel with these babies would be very, very weird compared to the way a mother here feels to her sure. children. And they seem to be extremely interested in the, these maternal feelings. So many, 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 many cases, and it involves men too, under hypnosis or, or just a solid, you know, regular recollection, remember being presented with a small baby or a toddler, told that the baby is theirs, which whatever that means, uh, let's say partially they contributed some genes or whatever, but anyway, they're asked to hold the baby or the toddler, and uh, it's as if they're staring at that human, the abductee, as if they're gathering what that person's emotions are. Uh, mm-hmm. People do feel that the emotions are being studied. Uh, that's, of course, totally subjective, but that's what they feel. Now, if they're interested in our morality, the way we treat one another, and the way we treat our, our children from the very beginning, uh, and how children play together and that, all of those things which seem to be areas of interest to the aliens, we have to say thank God for that. There's no interest that they seem to have in our atomic weapons or our uh, machinery or any, uh, any real weaponry with these few exceptions, like the one that was mentioned, Malmstrom and so forth. But the basic thing is, uh, is that they seem to be interested in what is good and human and most human about us, uh, not the things that uh, science fiction would imagine. And therefore, I can be optimistic that they seem to want what they don't have. What they don't have is individuality, is diversity, uh, as you said, in the hive uh, image and so forth, uh, and the soldier mentality is certainly the most hierarchical kind of thing, apparently. Right. Right. Uh, they don't even have these the sort of basic uh, human rights that, that we have and cherish, but they seem to be interested in them. So thank God for that, that they're interested in, in what's good about humans rather than the opposite. Well, and, well I, I wouldn't thank God so quickly for that, uh, Bud, because it seems to me like you know, one way of interpreting that would be what you're saying. Another way to interpret that would be that if they understand our morality, then they can learn how to override it. See, yeah, that's I, exactly I, true, and, and I'm, that's of why I say I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm, trying yeah. to, I'm trying to cling to whatever little shreds of hope there are yeah. left. Well, you know, the, the other thing, of course, Bud, is that 
Supposedly, UFOs have been here for quite a long time. It's not something that arose at the beginning of World War II or something, or 1947. They've been here so long, wouldn't you think, and I'll leave this as a cliffhanger, wouldn't you think that they already know this information because they've been following us for thousands of years? Before you answer... Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730. Or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. We're talking to Bud Hopkins, author of Intruders and lots of other stuff. By the way, if you click the Bud Hopkins name at the PowerCast.com website, you go right to the Intruders Foundation website, and you could check out a lot of his writings and, of course, the functions of the organization. So if these creatures, these beings, they could be one race, many races, whatever, have been here for thousands of years. What can they learn about us now that they didn't already know? Well, of course, again, we're we're, just, we're stuck with trying to figure out alien mentality and so forth. Alan Hynek used to use the image that perhaps a highly developed culture would send out scout ships, so to speak, uh, maybe not even equipped with crew, to study uh, and report on uh, various planets, if they have that capability, uh, in various uh, solar systems to see about uh, the development of the developmental levels of life, and perhaps at a certain point they come down and for a closer look, and especially when we develop uh, atomic energy and, and rocketry and so forth, they might want to get even closer to find out what's going on. So there might be a stages in this, that even though they uh, they maybe have been flying around over the pyramids, etc., as, as people say, that doesn't mean that necessarily they were using the same degree of, of um, investigation, let's say, that they have been doing in these abductions. I don't have any idea, but it's certainly possible that there are stages to it, and that this is a hmm. late stage. Hmm. Okay, well, all right, well, this might be a good possibility, but then the other question would be, we have these stories, and you have that book, Shoot Him Down. I don't know if you have read it. We had Frank Faschino on the show with Stanton Friedman. And the thing I was wondering about here is, do you think we really have tried to shoot them down? And if we have, how would they react? Would they just fire back or just get out of the way and indulge the lesser beings, those talking monkeys? What would happen? Well, you know... Uh... Uh, I have talked to two people who have tried to shoot them down. One general, uh, Farty, but I'm trying to remember his name. The Iranian general who was involved in the 1976 dogfight, so to speak, and uh, he was trying to, over Tehran, he was trying to aim his uh, uh, his rockets, his 
plane and, and get a lock on to fire at the uh, UFO, and the thing kept be, being evasive. And, of course, what ultimately happened is the electrical systems on his plane temporarily, you know, General Jafari, assistant, the electrical systems failed, but they didn't shoot back at him, even though he was trying to shoot at them quite definitely, as, as uh, he as he said to me in his wonderful English, uh, when he was trying to get the flock on, suddenly uh, the UFO moved and he had to make a circle in his plane and he made this circle when he completed this or halfway around the circle he found the ufo now was directly in front of him it moved uh, from one place to another in a split second and as he said to me that's when i doubled my scared uh he was <laughs> extremely upset well now we have a, a man uh, from um uh, the peruvian air force uh commandante Santa Maria was his name, Oscar Santa Maria, and uh, he was uh, in daylight trying to fire his machine guns at the UFO, and uh, he had been sent up by, and this was all being seen from the ground, and he fired machine guns, and he thought that uh, the bullets were going, that he was aiming correctly, but the bullets never seemed to have any effect, or they melted or something, he doesn't know what happened to them. And uh, but there was no attempt to get you know to be shot back at. So uh, though we may seem to be, I, I just think it, you know it, it would be like somebody in a tank, the UFO dealing with uh, some guy standing there with a bow and arrow. Uh, we were the bow and arrow guys, and uh, so I, I just don't think that our attempts to shoot them down have have worked. What about Roswell? Are we saying that well, the well, craft... I mean, nobody knows how that happened, though. Sure. Are we assuming that maybe the spaceships, or whatever they are, were built by the lowest bidder, like our own aircraft? <laughs> but, yeah, what might have happened there? Could we somehow damage their craft inadvertently? Well, you know, there have been many theories as to why there would be a crash. I, I have no idea. I mean, first of all, it's... Oh, we're all you know, speculating you know, here. We understand that. Yeah, there's a huge argument about Roswell, although I... I um, my position is that the things did crash and were recovered and so forth. But the point is that uh, uh, there's, there's just simply no way to figure out what may have happened. I think there have been crashes, and I don't know whether uh, uh, this is an aspect of the phenomenon like the putting the earrings in backwards or putting somebody in the wrong house or the wrong yard or what, that there's a kind of a, a degree of incompetence, we don't, or is this deliberate, or what? I mean, I have no way of knowing, and I don't think any of us do. And, and so it's, it's, it's just difficult for me to speculate about these things. Mm -hmm. It's fun to speculate, but it's difficult. I, incidentally, at, at the um, our support group uh, in New York, uh, I, I haven't had for a while of abductees, uh, I made a rule that we weren't to speculate about alien intentions and so forth. We were talking about personal experiences and how those experiences had affected our lives, that kind of thing. And uh, so uh, everybody abided by the rule and talked about, you know, how it affected them and what they had, you know, coping and everything. But then after we broke up, I found out they were all going out to a nearby bar and sitting there and speculating for the next two hours all oh, but, to what all this meant and what, what was but, going to happen. But that seems reasonable. I mean, the only way to try to, I think, ultimately really cope with this is try to try to understand the, the why. I think if people were pretty clear on the what, 
once you hit it, you hit a certain wall with that bud. Now you have to understand the why. That's just human nature, don't you think? No, I, I, I think it's human nature. No, I'm not. I'm not condemning it. I, I was just telling that story that oh, they yeah, needed okay. to to go and and somehow speculate. Although it wasn't helpful in the meetings when we, what we were doing dealing with were, for instance, people's phobias about going to the doctor or something. Uh, mm. Somehow, everyday stuff. But I mean, the, the speculations can be very interesting. But I tend not to be a speculator, as you probably have seen I, <laughs> or heard. It's, it's just my nature to uh, try and just stay with what can be established and then dump it out on the table for maybe other people to try and make sense of. Well, of course, in this topic, part of the problem is that most of the people who look at it ultimately probably feel that everything it all is it is all speculative and and it's real simple there because there's no tangible evidence in most cases now i'm saying that there isn't any at all we've spoken to ted phillips and he has some really fascinating stuff to say about his many hundreds of trace evidence cases that he's studied and right. you know so so they're dead when people say there's no physical evidence well well yeah there is physical evidence where there's not a good single photo well there are some good photos there absolutely but, of course, none of these things ultimately gives you the answer. Part of the problem, certainly, is that people maybe want one clean, simple answer. What is this? And yeah. maybe the, the truth is that there isn't a simple, clean answer. You know, even when we talk about cases that have a lot of things that are common to them, well, you know, this is like when we hear on television, you know, Larry King link UFOs and extraterrestrials. You know, do you think there's any way of separating in the minds of people these terms so that they understand that, you know, when we're talking about UFOs, we're talking about unidentified flying objects, and that means we, we don't know what, what they are, or, or is the contamination simply a done deal? Well, I think it's, at this point it's pretty hard to separate. I always like the, uh, in a humorous way, uh, Scott Rogo once made the remark that she probably wanted to withdraw right away, but he said he did not believe the UFO occupants were extraterrestrial in nature because they were not doing what extraterrestrials would do. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Which I thought was rather funny. Silly. But the yeah. point is, that's why UFO occupants is, is the proper term. We have the, the craft reports and we have the the reports of of occupants and so forth. So uh, we have got to come up with some kind of name. And, um, of course, when you say alien, why that's useful, alien just simply says what something isn't. I mean, when I go to Mexico City, I'm an alien. Uh, right, right. It just says what you're not. So when you say alien about these figures, you, you're, what you're saying is they're, they're not from Nebraska. You know, they're they're different not us. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a sort of a portmanteau word, you know. Right. Well, of course, the culture is indoctrinated, that word, with the meaning of being extraterrestrial. Yeah. Usually we hear extra extraterrestrials, a.k.a. aliens. At that yeah. point, you're, you're kind of trapped because really it's hard to separate those things because people maybe don't think in terms of the subtleties that are required to, to be clear about this. I'm, I'm comfortable with UFO occupants or alien as terms. Okay. All right. <laughs> What's the one thing you would have done differently in your career of looking at this if you had a chance to go back and redo how you've approached this? But is there one thing that maybe you would have handled differently in your study of this? Uh, well, it's a hard thing to say. 
I, I think that perhaps I was overly conservative um, in the sense that I there were things staring me in the face that I just couldn't accept or didn't want to deal with until mm -hmm. case after case sort of knocked me around and I had to finally accept. I, I had a resistance. Uh, maybe that was healthy on one level, but it was also uh, something that slowed down the process of, of learning uh, what was exactly going on during these abductions, why they seemed to be happening, and just from the human side. So I probably was, if I had been a little less conservative, a little more daring, I might have gotten farther earlier. That's uh, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, I probably should have, have uh, learned to and to do hypnosis earlier too because it's it's very useful and for seven years of investigations uh, I had to rely on people who were unfamiliar with the material and and uh, I mean there, there are lots of things I, I mean I, I'm sure oh. I, I I've uh, not been as attentive to, to some people I've worked with afterwards as I should have but uh, we'll see you just said something that, that I think people will be concerned with bud that you'd worked with uh, hypnotists that maybe weren't, quote, familiar with the material, unquote. I think a lot of people feel more comfortable with the idea that a hypnotist, the sort of the interface between current time and past memory, as far as um, an abductee is concerned, that maybe greater objectivity on their part ends up providing more objective material and results um, I think people have concerns about a hypnotist that is kind of into this topic because maybe there's a potential there for a certain level of cultural contamination in the hypnosis process. Well, that, that's, that's something that's, that's uh, been mentioned, of course. I don't feel that uh, there's a huge problem remaining objective, even though you're familiar. Uh, I think, for instance, if... You, uh, I mean, the suggestion is to bring somebody in who doesn't know anything at all about it whatsoever to do hypnosis. And uh, I think that person really wouldn't know where to start or how to go about it. Uh, it would be as if you have two people, uh, one who's very, very familiar with the circumstances of, of the case, and let's say that, that case is a... Uh, a robbery and a murder or something, mm, sure. and uh, a, a hypnotist who doesn't know anything about it. And uh, the questions that the person, the police might want to find out, that person would never think to ask. You know what? Mm. Uh, I'll tell you something. This is something we can pursue in a great extent on a future show because we know there's a lot more to talk about in terms of your research and UFO abductions. But before we let you leave the door with Elvis, as we say, can you tell us? where they can get in touch with you, our listeners, and also what you might be working on, what public appearances might be forthcoming. Uh, well, people can get in touch with me uh, with anything, they, you know, personal things or comments uh, at uh, intrudersfoundation.org. Uh, but uh, I'll be giving two talks in October. One is the conference in uh, Jersey City. Uh, you have the dates on that, I'm sure. I don't have it handy here. because. Indeed. Uh, I, yeah, uh, Jeremy Vaney's Culture of Contact event. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yes, I actually and, uh, will personally be crashing that one. Actually, but you're the first person who'll know this. I'm actually going to be attending that, and uh, I'm going to be uh, crashing the whole conference. I'm bringing a bunch of. Uh, I've got Bill Nye. I've got Seth Shostak. Uh, I'm flying, I'm, 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 I'm hey, that's flying. nice. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm going to be bringing a bunch of good scientists. 
along. I've got uh, uh, James Randy. And oh, that's his, great. Uh, oh, no, and his illegitimate son, Chippy Randy. Oh, um, Chippy great. Randy, that's terrific. Chippy By Randy. the way, before we get too chippy about this, yeah. we want well, to thank... Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a great list. Yeah, um, it's, it's going to get better as rate, we get to the event. And we're going to have uh, announcements, by the way. I'm also talking in, in uh, Boston uh, that same weekend. Uh, oh, really? Boston on a uh, Friday night, and uh, I think I'm talking Saturday night in Jersey City at that conference in October. Great. That's terrific. Two things coming up. Bud Hopkins, thank you so much for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you. Thank you, Bud. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. Thank you.